As we uh, turn our hearts now to God's Word, we've been reading through the book of Mark. You can go ahead and turn to Mark uh, chapter 5 if you'd like to read along with me. And uh, before we read, let us pray. Our God, would you keep us from coming before your Word presumptively? Would you help us to be humbled by the fact that we are learning of a holy God? And even though you are holy, you've given us your words so that we would know you. Lord, this is the sword of the Spirit. That this would help us not only to see and to believe, but to fight the power of evil. And so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us by your Spirit. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark chapter 5. We're reading just one account here, uh, so we'll be reading the first 20 verses. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he, that's Jesus, gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned there in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. 
In some sense, uh, every text from the Bible, in at least some way, is striking, it's interesting or curious to me. But this text in particular is one of the texts that, for me, causes me to breathe in but not out. Meaning I almost kind of take a gasp at a few moments in here. It's kind of unnerving what happens here. And we know that even though the Bible is a book of hope for the believer in Christ, the Bible is not ignorant or ignoring the tough conditions that people face. And this is one of those very tough conditions. The account in Matthew, as Matthew's recording this similar event, uh, describes two men that are helped from demons. There's no contradiction here necessarily. Uh, Mark is just focusing on one of the men, the one who seems to be in the worse condition, and his condition is perhaps the worst state of anyone in the Bible. His state is truly terrifying. If we look, let's just take a look at what's going on with the man here. It says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs. We don't know how this guy got here. There's no backstory. Um, it doesn't say that he was part of the occult, that he had joined a cult, or that he was messing with Ouija boards beforehand. Um, so, although, please don't do those things. Uh, cults, occults, and Ouija boards are not good for us. But that's not necessarily how this man got here. We don't know his background. All we know is that he is here now. And not just that he's here among the tombs, it describes him as living there. The tombs are his home. He's been here a while, we don't know how long, but long enough that it was recognized that this is where this man lived. And as we continue on, we see the reason why uh, things are as bad as they are. He's, he's in the tombs, he's an outcast, sort of living essentially in a cemetery. And it says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs and no one could, could bind him anymore. He was with an unclean spirit. This man is possessed or oppressed. He's under the power of demons. And as a result, he has progressively lost control of himself. That's the reason why they were trying, by the way, to bind him with chains. And when we get in verse 3 to the description, let's see, no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chains. It means that for some time, they were able to tie him up. Somehow there were chains and shackles, and that was enough to keep this man at bay. But it progressively got so bad that even that didn't work anymore. Something about the presence of demons had given this man such physical strength that he was able to break the chains and the shackles. Now, these were not tidy uh, police handcuffs that are the nice, shiny, I don't know what kind of metal that is, stainless steel. This would have been strong metal, but rough. And to break the chains and the shackles would have scraped the skin caused scars and bleeding in him. The irony is 
that even as his physical strength is growing, his mental strength is vanishing. This man is losing all control. In verse 5, it describes him as night and day crying out. Some Bibles translate this crying out as the word howling or screaming. Night and day, this man is screaming. Can you imagine the sound of that from the nearby city? And the sound of that, even for the man himself, night and day this is happening. If you've ever had a sleepless night without rest as one with a newborn, we have many of those. We have our version of screaming in our home in the middle of the night but not like this. And it gets even worse. Verse 5, not only is he night and day crying out, he's cutting himself with stones. He's taking jagged pieces of rocks and slashing himself. More blood, more scars. And then it says in Luke, and here at the end, describes him being clothed. This man is naked. So let's pull the whole picture together. We've got a naked, dirty, scarred, bloody, howling man. A wild man. If we can even describe him as a man at this point at all, he's barely human anymore. If we look at him, he's so dehumanized that he essentially is behaving like an animal. And when Jesus steps out of the boat, you know, uh, last week he had just been calmed the waves and the sea with the disciples as he's traveling across the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus lands here in this boat and steps out of the boat, and here comes this naked, bleeding, wild, dirty man barreling toward him. And they have a conversation. I don't know what that would have felt like to see this guy coming at you. But they talk. Now, some of it's hard to tease out if when the, the man is speaking, if it's actually him or when it's the demon somehow speaking through him, but they have a conversation here and the demons right away then realize and recognize who Jesus is. They call him Jesus, son of the most high God. In fact, in all of the gospels, the demons are always recognizing Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah even though the people don't. In fact, the disciples last week, when Jesus calmed the waves, if you remember, their final question was, who is this? So even as they're learning who Jesus is, the demons can see him as son of the most high God. And in reverse, Christ sees them. Verse 9, I'll read. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Burr. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? Makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. My name is Legion, for we are many. It reminds me of a lot of those scary movies, you know? That a lot of times when you're trying to make a character in a scary movie really scary, a lot of times movie makers will take that person's voice and echo it 
so that it sounds like one is speaking, but a bunch all at the same time, if you know what I'm talking about. In fact, I've heard uh, many tell personal stories about hearing from some whose voice echoes that there are multiple speakers all happening at the same time. Now, I can't personally attest to that. I've just heard stories, but I can at least imagine what this might have sounded like. We know that there wasn't just one demon here. There were uh, at least multiple, and not just a few. A Roman legion uh, was a group of soldiers at about 6,000. So it's not saying that there were exactly 6,000 demons, just a lot. There were at least enough that in verse 13 uh, describes uh, that 2,000 pigs uh, ran ran down the steep bank. I guess we could do the, the math there and divide it out. Each, each pig got three demons. I don't know exactly how that worked. Did they get one? I don't know. That's not the point here. The point is that there were a lot. His condition is far worse than I can imagine. And not only do they have a conversation here, as they begin to speak to one another, the demons try to negotiate with Jesus. Uh, the first negotiation, verse Eight. Well, let me see if I can find it here. Don't torment me. Don't torture me, he says. Do you hear the irony in that? That these demons who had tormented and tortured this man are now asking for mercy from Jesus. They can dish it out, but they can't take it. So that's their first negotiation. And then they beg in verse 10 that he won't send them out of the country. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Was it that they didn't want to leave this region of Gerasenes? Was it that there, there was some sort of particular power that they had over that region and the people there? It's possible that that's the case. But in Luke's account of this, uh, Luke um, helps us by adding in the detail that they beg not to be sent to the abyss, not to be sent to the pit. Essentially, they're asking Jesus, do not send us into the bowels of hell. Now, we often think that Satan and the demons are the masters or the rulers of hell. But that's not true. Even they don't want to go there. And their last... Uh, bit in this is they ask Jesus, do not send us out of this country. And Matthew adds, don't send us there before the time, they say. In essence, saying they know that this will happen one day. In fact, that account's recorded in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan and all his demons are cast into the lake of fire. This will certainly happen, but not before the time. It's not time for that yet. So what do we do now? Their last negotiation point is, please send us into the pigs. Now, this is where I get kind of quirky, and I go, boy, that's a really curious detail. What is going on with the pigs, right? And it, uh, <laughs> I'm not the only one that thinks this. I, I, asked, um, I asked Rebecca often, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this, uh, to 
uh, to send the, to choose hymns for us to sing on Sunday. And so I sort of let her generally what the sermon will be about on Sunday. And so I gave her this text. And I think on Tuesday, she sent me a, a list of the four hymn numbers. And then at the end, she wrote something like, what an odd text, poor pigs. <laughs> and I get that, right? I look at this and I go, poor pigs. You know, it's a little, it can be a little confusing, right? And, and if we take it to its fullest end, that we can even accuse Jesus, some here accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. Because let's read here what actually happens. Verse 12, send us into the pigs, let us enter into them. Verse 13, so Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. What a bizarre circumstance. And I, a part of me thinks, well, why not send them into like worms or something? Send them out into the air. Why did it have to go into pigs? There's two particularly difficult things about this, that there's a loss of quite a lot of life here. The 2,000 pigs died. And not only that, there's a loss of life, but there's also a loss of livelihood. There were herdsmen whose responsibility it was to take care of these pigs. Some of you all have pigs, I know, right? And it's not just for fun, not just for pets. We, we eat them. This is how we make money sometimes that they lost their source of income. So what's going on here? Well, I, I can't fix all of this. I don't know all of the reason why Jesus did it this way. I do know that Christ had authority to do this. He is the Lord over all, and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But there are at least two beneficial outcomes from sending the demons into the pigs. One of those beneficial outcomes is that we see the demons tangibly. Jesus says, come out, and then he permits them to enter into the pigs. So sometimes we think of demons, of these spiritual beings, as some, some sort of mystical force that they're somehow everywhere, that they're just kind of all over the place in the sense that they're kind of just sprinkled sort of like a fog. But that's not the case. They have a physical space. They're a spiritual body, a sp or a, they're a spiritual being, but they occupy space. They are in a particular place at a particular time. They are not omnipresent as God is. So at the time of the beginning of this text, there are many, a legion of these demons dwelling in this man. And then their space moves from dwelling in the man to dwelling in the pigs. And we can see it. So we know then that this man was not, his condition wasn't just imagined. What's going on here is very real powers. And that uh, Christ's authority over this then is not just imagined. It's very real, just as real as the time when he put his hand out and said to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were still. It was tangible, seeable. This pushes against our materialist mindset, forgetting the spiritual world around us. <coughs> now, let me be clear before I move on. 
that this does not mean that everyone who has symptoms like this or in a condition like this means that that's directly a result of demons. I've seen people in some very difficult situations as a result of uh, disability or, or mental illness. And those are some very real troubles, disability and mental illness. These are part of the fall, but they are not necessarily a direct result of demons or a direct result of sin. So if you see someone that looks like this, don't assume automatically that they have a demon. But at least for this man, there is no doubt this was demonic. The contrast between what happens here with him at the beginning and the way he looks at the end, did you, uh, did you catch it in verse 15? He was sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. So when the demons came out, he was freed. So that's one benefit of sending the demons into the pigs, that there's a tangible component that we could see it, that it pushes away some of our doubt, and we go, yes, this must have been demonic. I'm not just imagining it. The second benefit is that we can actually see the intent of the demons when we look at the fate of the pigs, that they drove the pigs to their death. And this would have been the end of, of the man. That the demons are there to degrade and destroy. And we cannot miss this. So we have to, it's okay to ask questions, but let's not get distracted by the loss of the physical lives of the pigs or the loss of the livelihood of the of the herdsmen, not miss what's really important here. In fact, Jesus later in chapter 9 will talk about how it is better to enter life crippled than to be healthy and thrown into hell. What he's getting at there is not that he doesn't care about our health. In fact, next week we'll see how much he values health. He's a healer in that sense, but he's putting priorities here that he's saying the spiritual here takes precedence over the physical. This should do something to us, by the way. This should affect at least our prayers. How often do we pray for physical things as we should? But how often do we pray for physical things in contrast to spiritual things? The state of our soul, the fight of spiritual battles against Satan and against demons. This calls us to be mentally present to that reality. Now, we look at a text like this, and, and I, I have to admit I have some of the, a similar response. I, I look at this, and you might think, Nathan, <laughs> this situation with this man is so dramatic. Not in the sense that it's untrue, it's just... That's such a bizarre situation. It's so different than what I'm familiar with and what I experience. What do I even do with a text like this, right? And on one hand, this text isn't mainly about this man or even about us. It's about the authority over, of Jesus over all things. But it's okay for us to ask, what do I do with this? Because, you know, I'm not oppressed by demons, and so how do I respond to this? But... Let me push us here. We are not as different from this man as we might think. We are not as different from this man as we might think. And I know we're 
pushing time here, but this is very uh, important for us. So hang with me. This is important. The end of this story, the outcome where the, the story ends, uh, the man is dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid, it says in verse 15. And that would be a nice, tidy way to end the, the account. And then they moved on. But that's not where Mark ends. Jesus the man comes to Jesus and asks to be able to go with him. I want to be your disciple. I want to travel with you, he says to Jesus, this one who has just healed him from all these demons. And Jesus says, no. He says, go home. Go back to your original home. Verse 19, go home specifically to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He's supposed to go, and not just tell anyone in general, he's supposed to go back to the people that know him, that would have known his bizarre circumstance, the shackles, the chains, the blood, all of that. And he would walk up to them and say, Hi, guess what happened to me? And I don't have a story like this. Because I don't, you know, I haven't experienced what he has experienced, and neither have they. So why does he send them back to them? These are normal people that he's going to to tell them. They're not, hey, listen, you're oppressed by demons, so was I, we're gonna, we'll be okay, because now Jesus is here. Why does he send them to people who are not oppressed by demons? They aren't oppressed by demons, are they? Paul, in Acts chapter 26, describes before King Agrippa his experience when he's traveling to Damascus and Jesus interrupts him. So we know, many of us know this story, that Jesus was at war against the Jews, he was at war against the Lord, and was... Uh, hell-bent on destroying what was happening, and Christ stopped him in his tracks and turned him in a different direction. We know that account. It happens in, in Acts chapter 9, but he's describing this in Acts chapter 26, and here's part of what he describes in his mission to the Gentiles. Paul is now sent by Jesus to go out and tell about Christ to these people who weren't Jews. Acts chapter 26, verse 17 I'm looking at the wrong page. There we go. I am sending you to the Gentiles. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Let me get that last part again. So that they may turn from the power of Satan to God. It's not just that, oh, go from nothingness to God. That these people, the Gentiles, people that do not know Jesus are under the power of Satan. By this, he does not mean that they're possessed in the way that we think of possession, sort of exorcist movies, spitting out green pea soup, right? Not that sort of thing. But let's not undermine what's really going on here, that, that Satan and the demons are exploiting sin and twisting humanity. They're digging into us. We're under 
Apart from Christ, we are under the power of Satan. And this happens with any sin. You could really think about it. Think about alcohol abuse, the sort of twisted humanity that comes in the result of this, that a person becomes mindless, sometimes violent and out of control. Or in the use of pornography, that this twists God's good design for sex and leaves us with bodies as empty shells. Or with untamed tongues. We bite at our neighbor, say nice things, but what we really mean is something nasty when we're clawing at one another in our hearts, that our humanity becomes twisted, bent, bloody, dehumanized, scarred, uncontrolled by shackles. And the end of something like this is that the humanity is driven off a cliff and drowned in the sea. This is the state of man. It's what we call total depravity. Hang on, we're almost there. The state of man now is an offense to God. He's, put his, he's given us his image. We're made in the image of God but now we're some bent version of this, and so what do we do about that? It's a very old problem with a very old answer. We have to go all the way back to Genesis for something like this. When God first puts the image of himself in man, and when the image of God was first marred by the fall, this is in Genesis 3 in what we call the Proto-Evangelium. It's a big fancy word, proto-evangelium, proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel or good news. This is the first time we're hearing the good news. We know that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and they disobeyed God, and as a result, curse came to them, to the land, and to all creation. And the serpent who feeds into that sin is also cursed. So this is one verse here, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the result of that. The Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity, or I will put war, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That last part, let me read it again. He, that's the seed or the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head, will deal a fatal blow to you, the serpent. And you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. There will be blood in this process. And all of this, this proto-evangelium, this first gospel described here in Genesis 3, verse 15, is fulfilled in Jesus. That the blood, of the, scar, the, blood the scars, the guts, all of what's happening to the man, the gore of it, for him was a mark of recklessness and powerlessness. When Jesus took on the blood and scars and his death on the cross, this was a mark of victory over sin, over death, over the powers of evil, over the demons, over Satan, over all of dehumanized image of God. He is restoring the glory of the image of God in his People. He is reclaiming what is already his with the result that the man is sitting clothed and in his right 
mind again. And in response to that, Jesus asks one thing. Go and tell. Go and tell what the Lord has done and how the Lord has had mercy on you. Let that be true of us as well. Let's pray. Our great God, we are so glad for your power because we see the power of the forces of evil actively at work in our lives and broadly even across, across the globe. Lord, the power of evil is great and that would be crippling to us if your power would not, if your power were not greater. Lord, help us to trust your authority over sin and over Satan. We know that you've redeemed us, that you've called us to yourself. Lord, help us to go and tell of your work in us so that the knowledge of your mercy would be known. And we give you all of our thanks and all of our praise in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.